The year is 1985. Ronald Reagan is president. Margaret Thatcher is prime minister of the United Kingdom. Madonna, George Michael, and Foreigner are dominating the Billboard charts. The movie Back to the Future is a smash hit at the box office. And scientists have just discovered a giant hole in the ozone layer above Antarctica. In the news, weakness in our protective atmosphere. Way up high, an unseen layer of ozone gas protects us from the sun's burning rays. But that protection has a weak spot. We'll be back with Ozone in the News. Scientists were warning that if left unchecked, this hole in the ozone would grow even larger, letting through harmful ultraviolet radiation from the sun that would wreak havoc on human health. Skin cancer rates would skyrocket, as would cataracts. In cities like Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., going outside for just a short period of time in the summer would be dangerous. Meanwhile, the basic ecology of the world's oceans could change as plankton that make up the bottom of the food chain would die off. In short, this was a threat to life as we knew it. But this nightmare scenario did not unfold. Rather, in just two years' time, before Universal Pictures even released the sequel to Back to the Future, the international community came together through the United Nations to create a binding international treaty that would lead to the healing of the ozone layer. This agreement is widely viewed as the world's most successful global environmental treaty, the only international environmental agreement that has been ratified by every country on the planet. And in this special episode of Global Dispatches podcast, we bring you the story of the Montreal Protocol. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and this special episode is produced in partnership with the United Nations Foundation. We bring you the story of the Montreal Protocol for a purpose. As we confront a myriad of threats to human health and the environment today, the Montreal Protocol reminds us that international cooperation can be harnessed to secure lasting solutions to these profound global challenges. So let's go back in time and learn how this agreement came together. One thing I find so interesting about the story of the Montreal Protocol is how scientific discoveries propelled international cooperation despite the fact that chemical companies at the time sought to obfuscate and downplay those findings. You were sitting in your office at MIT when the phone rang? Right. And then, again, uh, the first few minutes, what, Nobel Prize? I, I sort of was not believing it at the very beginning. That's Mario Molina. In 1995, he shared the Nobel Prize in chemistry for his work dating back to the early 1970s. Molina and his partner, the late Sherwood Rowland, who also shared in the prize that year, theorized that man-made chemical compounds known as chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, were destroying the ozone layer, which protects the Earth from the harmful effects of the sun's radiation. 
At the time, CFCs were extremely common. They were used as propellants in aerosol cans, were key ingredients of air conditioners, and had multiple industrial uses like the making of styrofoam. The company that manufactured most of the CFCs in the world was the DuPont Chemical Corporation based in the United States. They did not agree with the science, and at the time, they presented their own alternate theories. We were dealing with a small number of large chemical industries, five or six, and they, of course, did not accept initially that our hypothesis was correct. And, and you were just, you did this based on calculations, correct? Like you had, at that point, no ability to, to test the you know, stratosphere. You were just... That's kind of... correct. The, the, the experimental basis was just a measurement of these compounds uh, and other measurements that have been carried out of the, the presence of the ozone layer and the ultraviolet radiation and so on. But it was a hypothesis that remained to be tested. This is where Susan Solomon comes in. In 1986, she was an atmospheric chemist working at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. A year earlier, the British Antarctic Survey identified the hole in the ozone layer above Antarctica. Susan Solomon had a theory about why this hole was forming above Antarctica of all places, and her theory could prove Molina's hypothesis. So, in August 1986, in the dead of winter in the Southern Hemisphere, she led a team of scientists to Antarctica. We had measurements as a function of lunar angle, and I could actually see that the behavior fit with uh, what you would expect for a fairly constant amount of chlorine dioxide just getting to be more and more and more signal for us because the angle was getting bigger and bigger. That was pretty amazing. That was so exciting. I was thinking, my gosh, you know, it really looks like it is chlorine. That's something. This was it. Susan Solomon's discovery put any debate about the cause of the hole in the ozone layer to rest. A hole was forming and chemical compounds made by industries on Earth were to blame. What happened next is almost unthinkable in a modern political context. And even today, it still sounds kind of crazy. But back in the 1980s, the United States government, under a Republican administration, used these scientific discoveries to inform a coordinated international response. And this was not just any Republican administration. This was Ronald Reagan who embraced a philosophy of deregulation that is standard in the Republican Party today. Together, we have cut the growth of new federal regulations nearly in half. But when the going got tough, the Gipper turned to multilateralism. The EPA increasingly banned CFCs to the point where the United States had some of the toughest regulations on ozone-depleting substances in the industrialized world. But domestic action would not be enough. For the Reagan administration, the logic was pretty straightforward. CFCs don't respect borders, so to make a real difference for the ozone layer, these American regulations needed to go global. Here is Ronald Reagan's EPA administrator, Lee Thomas, in testimony before Congress in 1986. We believe a small change in the amount of UVB radiation striking the Earth and or a change in the Earth's mean temperature could have significant environmental and health consequences. As you know, both issues are global in their effects as they will be in their solutions. 
For these reasons, the demand for an international as well as domestic coordination process is as great as any issue we deal with. And they were thinking, well, you know, we can either get stuck doing this ourselves uh, or we can try to spread the burden around the world. And there are some real leaders in the Reagan administration. That's David Doniger, a longtime environmental leader with the National Resources Defense Council in the United States. He also explains that by the mid-1980s, the chemical industry, specifically the DuPont Corporation, fully embraced the science behind ozone depletion and CFCs. This was key because DuPont produced about one quarter of all CFCs at the time. After years of foot dragging, they wanted to become part of the solution. So, to that end, they began developing safe alternatives to CFCs. It was this combination of government action and industry engagement that led to the first real breakthrough in conceptualizing how a global market for safe alternatives to CFCs might be fostered. David Doniger was both a participant and a witness in this moment. He tells the story. So the Environmental Protection Agency ran a very shrewd process at the time with the cooperation of the State Department. In the mid to late 80s, they ran a series of scientific studies and then conferences, which were to show just how big the risks could be and how available the solutions were. Some of this stuff happened in very much in closed doors. For example, there was a meeting in Vienna, Virginia. It was, it was in 86. And I remember that the folks from DuPont at the time, they came in in all sincerity to try to demonstrate that there were no solutions to this problem. And the way they did this was running us through a list of all the chemicals that they had investigated as alternatives. Their case was, well, this one might work technically, but it's too expensive. It won't work. There's another one that would work technically, but it's more expensive to produce than the incumbent chemicals. So there are no solutions. Uh, It led me and a colleague of mine to lock eyes across the table and then sort of simultaneously say, you mean to tell me the problem here is that the incumbent chemicals are just cheaper than the uh, than the replacements? But there are replacements, but they're they're a little too expensive. Uh, uh, Yes, that's right. Uh, So what if we were to restrict the availability of the incumbent chemicals, the CFCs, uh, gradually over time? Uh, wouldn't that make the market for the new chemicals? And the industry people kind of looked at each other sheepishly and said, "Well, I guess that I guess that would work." That's that's the origins right there of the of the Montreal Protocol. This was that meeting at at the IBM headquarters yeah. in Vienna, Virginia. Right. We called it the Spirit of Vienna. <laughs> it was Vienna, Virginia, but. That breakthrough in Vienna, Virginia, would not have amounted to much if not for a key UN meeting in Vienna, Austria, in 1985. That was the year, of course, in which the hole in the ozone layer was first discovered, and countries around the world met in Vienna, Austria, to discuss ways in which they could work together to take on this global problem. Their discussions led to what is known as the Vienna Convention for the Protection of the Ozone Layer. In UN parlance, what countries agree to in Vienna is known as a framework convention. It's basically a broad agreement between countries that they ought to take on a certain set of problems, but without the specific nuts and bolts of how to do it. Think of it as an agreement to come to an agreement. 
Two years later, by 1987, with that Vienna Framework Agreement in place, countries were finally ready to discuss the nitty-gritty details of phasing out the use of CFCs. Canada offered to play host and chose the beautiful city of Montreal as the venue. As delegates from 24 countries arrived in Montreal, the outcome of these negotiations was far from certain. Everyone broadly agreed that CFCs should somehow be curtailed, but they disagreed profoundly on how to do that. The United States, Canada, and the Scandinavian countries were pushing for the most ambitious outcome for Montreal, the rapid phase-out of CFCs. Most of Europe, though, was not as ambitious, and they indeed felt threatened by this U.S.-led proposal. Maria Ivanova is a professor at UMass Boston and director of the Global Environmental Governance Project. She's literally written the book on the United Nations Environment Program, which is now simply known as UN Environment. It's important to note that almost all of the production by the United States was used domestically. While in the European Union, much of it, um, about a half, was actually exported. And the European or the European community at the time was the largest exporter of ozone depleting substances. And so you will have these dynamics where the United States was skeptical of uh, the European Union and the European Union was skeptical of the United States. And they thought that any ozone, any substitutes for uh, the ozone depleting substances then would make them irrelevant as an exporter of, uh, of these chemicals worldwide. And so when you have the largest producer of those substances in the world, DuPont, having come up with substitutes to these ozone depleting uh, chemicals, then the European Union or the European countries would certainly think that the United States was out to get them. Meanwhile, Japan and the Soviet Union were also significant producers of CFCs and had their own concerns about cutting down on their use. In Japan, the main issue was that CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons, were used as the cleaning agents in the in the microchips in the electronics industry, which was the core of the Japanese economy. In the Soviet Union, the fear was that if you had to restrict the use of, uh, of uh, ozone-depleting substances, they would harm refrigeration and air conditioning, which was a significant issue for the southern states or the southern republic in the Soviet Union, and that would create political pressures or political tensions in, in that country. To complicate this picture even further, the world's less developed countries also somehow needed to figure into this agreement. They were not a large source of CFCs at the time, but they could be in the future. So you have a, a very strong set of irreconcilable differences among all the major powers in the world. So... So enters Mustafa Tolba. Mustafa Tolba served as the executive director of the United Nations Environment Program from 1975 to 1992, and he led the negotiations in Montreal. It happened through the force of uh, the personality and the conviction of Mustafa Tolba. 
And that is interesting not least for the fact that Tolba did not have a traditional diplomatic pedigree. He was trained as a scientist. Tolba died in 2016. By all accounts, he was a brilliant plant pathologist who received a PhD in microbiology from the Imperial College of the United Kingdom. He's written scores of scholarly articles in various scientific journals on topics ranging from plant diseases to global governance. Well, what's interesting to me is that here you have someone who is a very accomplished scientist in a very specific field, plant pathology, who it turns out is also an exceptionally skilled diplomat. Yes. So Topa is often described as the diplomat scientist. And this is who he was. And all of the skills that he had as a scientist and as a diplomat really made him very successful in uh, environmental diplomacy broadly defined. In Montreal, those diplomatic skills were on full display. In fact, in Montreal, he pioneered a technique that is still used in complex negotiations at the United Nations to this day. One of these is a technique known as the informal consultation. What Toba figured out is that if he could talk to countries meaning to their delegates as people, as uh, citizens, as concerned individuals who saw that there was a common problem and enticed them to figure out ways to resolve these problems together. And if he could do that in an informal setting, then they could figure out a way to translate that um, agreement into formal language. So what would like an informal setting look like? So like in the hallway of a, of a conference? No, no, no. They're, they're now formally called informal consultations. So you would, you would meet in a, in a separate room, in a closed room. Uh, it's a closed door session and uh, you will have the, so not the ministers. It will be the functionaries, the administrators in those, in those ministries, the experts, the negotiators, they would meet and, and hammer out the issues. And it worked. In these looser settings, governments were able to overcome what at one time seemed to be irreconcilable differences of position. Here is Tolba delivering closing remarks during the signing of the treaty in the evening of September 17th, 1987. In the end, the Montreal Protocol included a few key compromises. The United States, Canada, and Scandinavian countries that supported the rapid phase-out of CFCs agreed to a less ambitious timetable. But they did so because the signatories agreed to reconvene every few years to realign the agreement with the latest science and, if necessary, ramp up ambitions based on newer scientific discoveries. It turns out that this is exactly what happened three years later in a meeting in London in 1990, when countries agreed to a 100% phase-out of CFCs by 1999. 
That meeting in London also gave birth to something called the Multilateral Fund. This is essentially a funding pool into which wealthier countries pay in order to help poorer countries develop CFC replacement strategies. This, too, was a major innovation that continues to influence multilateral environmental policy to this day. It really put into practice um, a principle that has become fundamental in uh, environmental governance and, and diplomacy, that of common but differentiated responsibilities. Um, we, we hear that quite, quite a bit, and it was enshrined in the, in, at the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. But its practicality and the way to address it actually um, happened with the multilateral fund for, for the Montreal Protocol, which basically created a financial mechanism where developed countries, those that were seen as responsible for the problem, would put money and those contributions would fund the incremental costs of developing countries being able to comply with the uh, obligations under the Montreal Protocol. The multilateral fund turned out to be a powerful incentive for poor countries to join the protocol. The initial agreement was only signed by 24 countries, but the multilateral fund is arguably the reason that the protocol is completely universal. In March 1988, the United States Senate met to ratify the protocol. And again, this seems somewhat inconceivable today, but the vote was unanimous, 83 to 0, in favor of ratifying an international environmental treaty. Ready on foreign relations, we'll come to order. Uh, we have a quorum present, record should so note. The two items on the agenda, the treaty and some nominations. Uh, the treaty is on the ozone layer. We just had the hearing. Uh, it seems to be without controversy. And it, we, I would suggest uh, that you might want to move it. Mr. Chairman, I move we uh, report the treaty favorably. I second that. Good. All those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? The ayes have it. Uh, the amendment, uh, the uh, treaty is, uh, will be reported to the floor. Countries around the world ratified the protocol quickly, and it entered into force formally in January 1989. But the Montreal Protocol did not end here. It turned out that one of the replacement chemicals for CFCs, called HFCs, were an extremely potent greenhouse gas. They may not deplete the ozone layer, but HFCs are undeniably contributing to climate change. In October 2016, members of the protocol met in Kigali, Rwanda, to do to HFCs what countries did to CFCs 30 years earlier phase out their production and consumption. To Rwanda now, where the 28th meeting of the parties for the Montreal Protocol is underway in Kigali. The protocol is considered the most... The resulting agreement is called the Kigali Amendment, and it's estimated that this action will reduce overall global warming by 0.5 degrees Celsius by 2100. And this action significantly contributes to the Paris Agreement's overall goal of keeping warming under 2 degrees Celsius by 2100. The amendment and decisions are adopted. 
The Kigali Amendment is a reminder of the Montreal Protocol's continued value to world affairs. Another reminder was the discovery in 2018 that someone, somewhere, is releasing a banned CFC into the environment. A team of scientists publishing in the journal Nature found evidence of a banned CFC in the stratosphere. The ozone hole is still closing, but the release of this banned CFC means it's closing somewhat slower than expected. Melinda Kimball is a longtime climate change NGO leader and advocate. She is now a senior fellow with the United Nations Foundation. Already regulated substances are coming back into the atmosphere. And that means we have to try to develop a chemical signature on what's going into the atmosphere, why we're seeing this, what's the source of it. And how do we maintain the progress under the protocol? And that's so interesting to me, like how it's still very much, you know, 30 years later, like a living entity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's so important for the advancement of human health. I mean... We have more skin cancer, we have more cataracts, you know, we have other problems created by these gases, and if we're not going to take it seriously and keep the progress going forward, we'll lose the battle. Like global efforts to confront climate change, the stakes of losing that battle are very high. And they will affect us not in some distant future, but very soon. Fortunately, policymakers had the foresight 31 years ago to take actions multilaterally that are protecting us to this day. I think it's most important that countries can come together and identify common objectives and pursue them in the context of national interests as well as global interests. And that's the Montreal Protocol is perhaps the best example of that. A little over 30 years ago, countries came together through the United Nations to put forward a global solution to this global problem, and we are all better off for it. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Global Dispatches podcast produced in partnership with the United Nations Foundation. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. Julian Weller was an associate producer on this episode. Please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more about the podcast and peruse our robust archive of interviews with foreign policy thought leaders and newsmakers.